measure of success. In this podcast, I will discuss my time at Oak Hills High School in one of their biology classrooms. This podcast will discuss my own identity within the school community and how my experiences there help shape how I see myself inside the classroom as well as I, how I see my students based on their school experience and community. So sit back and enjoy this section of my aught entitled Measure of Success. Walking into Oak Hills High School, I couldn't help but notice the similarities between this high school and the one I went to just 10 miles away. There were the same motifs of teachers and students, like the polo social studies teacher who also coaches a sport, or the really short English teacher, or the small group of friends that walk together to class every day. I noticed student work on the hall and an art display in the front wall. I was greeted at the desk by a friendly face who called me Hun and was extremely chipper for it being 7 in the morning. And as I started my first day at this new school where I would be teaching for the next 16 weeks, I noticed more and more things about the school. First of all, it was massive and I guaranteed I was going to get lost on the second day of school. There were a lot of kids. In fact, I learned later on the senior class was over 600 students. I noticed similarities in styles between students, like designer purses and hydro flasks covered in stickers. But on my way home, after I spent the whole day feeling overwhelmed, there was one characteristic I couldn't help but think about on my drive. I couldn't help but ask myself, is everyone here white? Journal entry. January 27th. I've been at the school for three days and I am still experiencing some culture shock. Out in the hall, I see students who have proud, who proudly have Black Lives Matter movement stickers and pride buttons. At first, I was excited to see how f- safe they felt showing those part of themselves to the world. However, with every pride button or BLM movement symbol I saw, I also saw a Trump mask and a Blue Lives Matter gator. Unfortunately, I felt an instant dislike for some of those students, and it took me a minute to realize how bad that was on my own part. If I'm to teach all students, that means students with beliefs I may not agree with politically. All I can do is show them the same compassion and support I do for all other students, and continue to teach them facts and teach them the skills to make their own opinion based on the facts in front of them, and not what their parents say to be true. They need to be able to make their own decisions and allowed to make their own decisions, regardless of where they're from. End of journal entry. After my first day of school, I went online to Ohio Education's website to look up some more information about Oak Hills. Oak Hills racial demographics are 87.5% white, 4.3% black, 4.1% identifying as multiracial, 2.8% Hispanic, and 1.1% Asian. While I couldn't find a lot of data about the economic demographics of the school, simply observing students moving between classes gave me a pretty clear picture of what the student body looked like. Most students come from an upper or middle class and are placed in at least one honors class in the school. In the halls, I see designer bags, Lululemon yoga pants, and designer shoes, 
and many students are even privileged enough to participate in multiple sports without the worry of it interfering with any job they might have or need. Meanwhile, 14.7% of the student body is labeled as economically disadvantaged, and 0.6% of the school are English language learners, according to the Ohio Ed website. While this group may be small, it is still part of the school and deserves to be recognized and represented in the staff and in the curriculum. But as for the staff, I have yet to meet one staff member of any racial minority. And many come from very similar backgrounds, wealth-wise and religiously, as the students. Many students and teachers are Catholic and participated in Lent, as did the cafeteria serving fish on Fridays during that time period. The school is obviously trying to make students and staff feel more comfortable and at home by bringing community beliefs into the classroom and the school, and by allowing students to express themselves in all ways. However, in such a big school, it's easy to leave out a number of students in this goal, especially when those few students don't match the identity of the overall school demographics. Oftentimes, these students become distant from school. As Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum describes in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Students whose culture and identities are not valued or recognized in school are often distanced from school, not by anyone's own volition, but simply because if identities are not recognized in the school as valid or represented, the connection between the school and the student will weaken. However, this connection can be strengthened by individual teachers supporting all students, no matter their race, sexual orientation, gender, or even political beliefs. I know that when I came into this classroom, I came in with a bias against students who supported Trump and Blue Lives Matter. However, this deficit thinking put me at a disadvantage when trying to connect with these students, as the unconscious bias that I expressed while working with them translated into a mutual feeling of distancing which did not help my case for engaging students in learning. It is a teacher's job to recognize their own bias and learn how to prevent them. However, with such a large school that has so few students of color or other minority identity or two or more, the challenge is making sure that these students also feel valued even when they are so far between. In Tatum's book as well, she discusses how no changes in injustice will happen without talking to all identities in the issue. This means that white people also need to be included on these conversations of racial injustice as well as people of color. This is how I view the issue of representation in predominantly white schools like Oak Hills. All students and all staff, regardless of their race, can benefit from a discussion about race and other identities that face discrimination today. By creating a space where we can openly recognize privilege, we can support students of minority identities by saying with our actions and teaching, I love you, I see you, I wanna support you, I understand our differences, and I value all you have to offer. Meanwhile, we're also engaging students who fit the majority demographics of Oak Hills, such as white upper-class families, 
in a meaningful discussion that will shape them to participate in creating a more safe and loving environment for everyone. This idea of engaging students in discussions of privilege and social justice issues today, unfortunately, is few and far between at any school. And the results are that while some students at Oak Hills wear pride flags, others wear symbols of hate. As someone who is very privileged in my race and sexuality, I cannot imagine how some students must feel to see their peers proudly wear such symbols of hate and injustice. But the minority students of color and students who identify as LGBTQ don't feel like they have the power to fight these microaggressions or feel brave enough to try to educate their peers which means that this division between students based on race, economic status, home life, or even sexuality is thrown upon the teachers to help solve. However, while many teachers are very equitable in their practices and encourage students to challenge the status norm, there are those who choose not to get involved and simply continue to teach the way teachers have taught for years. Follow the standards, don't deviate, Teach every kid the same way. Journal excerpt, Wednesday, April 21st. Today we are in the middle of testing, but with everything going on, I have yet to hear one teacher mention the verdict of Officer Derek Chauvin to anyone. Maybe it's just the madness of the week. But why isn't anyone talking about it? good or bad. End of journal excerpt. With so many different political opinions in the school, the question remains, who holds power in this school? And why aren't we talking about these issues and having discussions on both sides of the coin? My only guess is that since the school is not taking a stand either way, the people in power are on both sides of the fight. And as a result, the school has chosen to be silent on the matter, which I honestly think is worse. In the book, Is Everyone Equal by Sinsoy, the authors discuss how the history of America, especially education, systematic powers control the goals and beliefs of institutions. And for the entirety of the American education systems, these powers have been in the hands of mostly wealthy white men. These were the people that wrote the policies of what can or can't be taught in schools and how the school will be run. However, at a local level, the power of how schools deal with students in learning is held by the parents. In the podcast, Nice White Parents by Jay Snyder, the power that invested parents can have on the school's dynamic is illustrated in a story about an inner city school in New York. As wealthier white parents took over this inner-city school and encouraged the principal to approve programs that serve their needs instead of already established communities who needed the school because they could not send their kids anywhere else, unlike the nice white parents who used the school as a charter school. Within a year, this New York school that was barely surviving had a UN-funded France program, all thanks to the wealthy white parents who took the time to support the program. Meanwhile, many students at the school still didn't know how to speak English, and there were not enough funds to hire an ELL teacher. 
the story shows how the power shows the power that p- parents can have on how the school is run, especially at a school like Oak Hills that relies on a lot of donations from their upper upper middle class families. These families are mostly white too. This means that the values of up upper white middle class members are the only ones that are being pushed at the school. And all the other identities or intersections of identities may or may not be valued depending on what power holders view as proper education. And with so many people in power holding similar identities, the cultures and values of other identities not represented at the board meetings or at the federal level are are brushed to the side. With all these factors of teachers trying to teach with social justice, institutionalized power, and families on both sides of the argument being involved in the school, it has created a tug of war that puts teachers and students in the middle. Are we allowed to have these discussions, or are we putting our jobs at risk if we do? But unless students are given the chance to talk about these issues and have logical discussions that are based in fact, Nothing is going to get done in the future, and these issues are going to become worse and worse because the next generation of social justice fighters are blind and unfamiliar with the issues in hand. There's no greater example of this in my experience than one of my units. This unit in particular used the phenomenon of melanin and skin tone to analyze genetics. We first used albinism to look at mutations and eventually examined the connection between the evolution of skin tone and geography. In a nutshell, students developed this idea that skin tone is due to your genetics. And there was a selective pressure for people who lived in Africa to have darker skin tones to protect them from the immense amounts of UV radiation. While those who lived closer to the poles needed lighter skin so they, they could absorb enough sunlight for vitamin D production. This sets up the stage beautifully for an argument about biological skin tone versus race as a sh- social construct and where do stereotypes come from, but this conversation did not happen. The first reason came to no surprise for me. It was lo- due to a lack of time. With standardized testing, I was constantly under a time constraint. But the second reason, unfortunately, was I feared rocking the boat too much. I admit it, as a little inexperienced student teacher, I was afraid of what administration would say if a parent called the school and complained. I know several kids whose parents definitely would, too. Even discussing my frustrations with my significant other, he advised me not to piss in off anyone too much because right now I am dispensable. While not every parent would complain, those who shout louder normally get their way. So in that case, who holds power? It's the ones that have the time and energy to get involved and speak their minds. And a large portion of Oak Hill's parents have similar views and would express them. The similar similar views on the role of school and what they expect us to teach or what not to teach their children. And those views, unfortunately, are often the ones we have to follow. However, with every majority, there is a minority. And while this minority is small at Oak Hills, 
it is still present. And the most notable division at Oak Hills is with economic status. Oak Hills does not participate in any free or reduced lunch program. At the beginning of the year, members of the school can sponsor a student who needs assistance for lunch. But this, to me, feels more embarrassing and shameful than free or reduced lunch programs. This charity seems like a great way to bring together a community, but may feel more shameful for those who actually need it. And this is not the only thing that causes a great divide between high socioeconomic status and lower economic status students. While many students participate in sports every day, attend AP classes that expect two or three hours of homework every night uh, while thinking about their futures, there's also a set of students who have to work or struggle with food insecurity and have too much stuff to deal with outside of school to really focus on their classrooms. Meanwhile, I constantly get emails about new donors who are providing funds for sports and things like that. But for my students who fall into this category of economically disadvantaged, or even some of my students who are not officially recognized as disadvantaged but are suffering, they don't have the time to participate in extracurriculars or spend time studying for honors or AP classes. I have several students who sleep in class because they worked late that night, or others that are stressing about making money during the summer, all while applying for scholarships because they can't afford college. For many of these students, school is not their first concern. Their first concern is financial, and as a result, their education and grades fall to the side. However, many of my students are also struggling in school in general for many different reasons, but the main one being is that they just don't succeed with the way school runs. For years, schools have run under the assumption that every student is a blank slate, ready to be molded, and they're going to absorb all the information they are given and puke it back up on the paper. While many students can excel at this, many don't. Students are not able to retain information this way, especially long-term. While many classrooms like mine are changing the way they view learning and engaging students in more student-centered activities that push students to form their own ways of knowing by th through critical thinking, some students are still falling behind the rest. I know this because of the frustrations I see in the students when I teach. Many simply ask for the answer and bellyache when I encourage them to think critically and come up with their own solutions on their own. This tells me for years these students have been used to the dump method, where they memorize a whole bunch of stuff and dump it back up on the paper. But this is not how humans retain information long term. And while slowly schools are catching up to this concept, it isn't fast enough. However, overall, Oak Hills is still very traditional in how they run classes, with handouts and writing and turning in assignments. But this is not how everyone learns, and those who do succeed in this environment are praised while those who struggle fall behind further. Many students don't have the time to go back after school and get the help they need, or they feel too ashamed to ask for help. The times... I have had a student say to me, I just don't know where to start is shocking. 
One change, however, for this issue was adding an extra study hall that everyone received due to the necessity of an extra lunch bell for COVID. I also have many students that come in now and finish work with me during this time. And hopefully Oak Hills will be able to keep this study hall in the future. But the divide of power and privilege between the students is still present. I listen to many of my students' frustrations with other teachers who don't accept late work or who won't let them come retake a test. I was shocked. This was new knowledge for me, and honestly, it angered me that many teachers in the school were adding to the fire of inequity in this high school. These expectations that all students will be able to complete their work at home is unfair to so many students, and many people who hold power in this regard, like teachers and administration, still don't recognize the issue that many students need extra time to succeed to their fullest potential. Oak Hills values a student's education among all other, th- other things and expects its students to have the same value as well. However, in students who may not be having all of their pedagogical needs met, education is not a priority, but it's an obstacle. This feeling of education being an obstacle is made concrete when relating it back to the hierarchy of needs and inability to think critically when a person is in survival mode. When a student is not having all of their needs met, like food security, safe home life, emotional support at home or at school, when those needs are not met, a student's mind is in survival mode, and its only focus is getting the student out of that dangerous situation it's in. When a student is in this fight, flight, or freeze mode, they are not physically capable of higher-level thinking. This is outlined in Sauer's book, Fostering Resilient Learners, where it discusses how teachers need to create an environment that allows for a student's brain to rest from this fight, flight, or freeze response so that students can engage in high levels of thinking. However, for a long time, many schools like Oak Hills did not consider this issue of fight, flight, or freeze and expected students to toss aside these negative feelings they had when they entered the building. This leaves many students seen as not capable, or the students themselves see themselves as stupid because the school was not giving them a space where their needs were being met, and yet they were expected to use critical thinking and problem-solving skills. What this often leads to is a large group of students are pushed off under the rug and are not given the services they need because while they are struggling, they're not struggling enough for the school to get involved. This leaves it up to the teachers to support them even more during the student's time of trauma. This is something I had not experienced before, and I find it difficult to relate to these students who do not struggle who struggle for the reasons of trauma, because I have never experienced this myself. These are the students that are not celebrated at Oak Hills, and they are often swept under the rug. The students that don't feel represented or supported by the school. The minorities that don't see themselves in the teachers or feel as if the school cares about them and what they're going through. These students often don't engage in sports or extracurriculars for the same reason. 
During one staff meeting, it was brought up in a survey last year that 40% of Oak Hill students don't feel a sense of belonging at the school. During the same meeting, it was brought up that Oak Hills has the highest proportion of Cincinnati Children's Hospital in-care youth check-ins at their mental hospital facilities. I was so stunned. The school on the outside seemed like a happy place where everyone had something on their life to hold on to. This, but this statistic felt like an eerie secret that the school wanted to hide. Especially how the meeting kind of brushed over this statistic after it was spoken. And looking back, I believe that this statistic is due to the lack of feeling of students that they are cared for and supported in the school. But the school does not either does not attempt to fix the problem or they don't have the resources or time to support the students. Many are just pushed through or are in and out of suspension for other incidences. But I can relate to the vast majority of students who model the school's expectations of performance and academic success. So what does that mean for me when I'm teaching those students that struggle with mental health and don't have that sense of belonging? For me, as a cisgendered white female who comes from a home where money was never a real issue, I relate to a lot of my students at Oak Hills. I see myself and many of them as a high achiever, overthinker with multiple extracurriculars on an honors track and was expected to go to college. I met deadlines, I freaked out whenever I missed an assignment, and I was even second in my class. And this is the expectation that Oak Hills has for a vast majority of its students. The school celebrates athletes and honor students who receive scholarships and make the school look better in succeeding in ways the school values, like academically and through sports. And in no other way is this more proudly represented than with their school's motto or mission statement that proudly hangs over the lobby. Quote, All Oak Hills High School students will achieve success by graduating with a shared sense of global awareness and the critical skills to be college and career ready. End quote. So let's break this down. Quote, all Oak Hills high school students will achieve success by, end quote. So right off the bat, this is telling me that Oak Hills has a centered philosophy that any student that follows this motto is going to be successful. Any person can tell you that there is no guarantee in life like that. Next, quote, graduating with a shared sense of global awareness and critical skills to be career and college ready, end quote. Who the hell decides what it means to be college and career ready or have a sense of global awareness? I'm not saying these aren't great things to achieve, but because of the way the school runs due to mandates like standardized testing and the bureaucracy, especially when it comes to the underachievers, they are not giving the, every student the opportunity to reach this. For example, with standardized testing, my level two students in two weeks before the test learn DNA, DNA replication, homeostasis in cells, osmosis, and cell transportation all in five days. 
that does not meet this motto's ideals because of this mandate of testing. These goals of college and career readiness and global awareness are unattainable due to the time crunch. I could have talked about lead poisoning and water with osmosis, or DNA and cancer, or engaging students in data analysis, but there just was not enough time for that. However, Oak Hills needs to continue to present this motto in public image because so much of their funding is due to donors and other people who hold power in the way the school is run. The school actively tries to show the image of a united and high-achieving school. This is done through various emails about athletes winning competitions and the school's quota of having at least 60% of the freshman class on an honors track for graduation. I have tons of students in my honors class that this has hurt. They should not be in honors. They need a slower and more structured pace than honors can provide. But this is the path that the school has pushed on them as well as their parents. I love school. I love learning about science and enjoy thinking critically. Especially as a college student in my position, I really benefit from a school culture in which school is the most important thing and those who succeed in school are more deserving of praise. I followed this motto to a T in high school and in college, but I was privileged in my own identity to be able to focus on these skills and school so heavily when many of my peers were unable to. My love of school and my passion for learning would have put me at the top of Oak Hill's list of exemplary students for one reason. I come from a family and self-identity that has the privilege of putting school as my top priority. I personally focus on my grades and was privileged enough to come from an environment that, where this was encouraged and doable. All my needs were met and I was socially and emotionally healthy enough to focus on school. This is the ideal situation for any student, and this is the ideal situation that Oak Hills wants all their students to be in, but it's not realistic. When I first started student teaching, I was blinded by this fact. I was so privileged in my own identity of a happy and healthy mental state and safe home, I couldn't imagine any other thing that might be more important than school for high schoolers. But the more I read, the more I realized how blinded I was. The book, The Body Keeps Score, in the book of Fostering Resilient Learners, opened my eyes to the fact that many of my students' lives may be more challenging than mine. I needed to keep that in the back of my mind as I taught. Journal Entry April 12th. Today I found out that two of my students from level two are up for expulsion. I'm shocked by one. Then is a great kid in my class and really tries to get into the material. Although he's been going through some stuff, he did have to step out in the hallway last week and broke down. He just sat there with his head in his knees. Something was going on that affected him. But Sam, on the other hand, he sleeps during the class and will try his hardest not to do any work. I don't know anything about what's going on with him. He never acts out or breaks down, he just stays quiet. And I honestly think that's worse. 
And yet with all of this, I don't want to see any of them go. I hate that they are being pushed out and not given a chance to redeem themselves, or that anyone will be there to support them after they're going to be pushed out. I want to support these kids and be in their corner, but I can't do that if they're not in my class. This has also affected some of my other students, too. Jordan was so frustrated that Ben was no longer in the class, he slammed his backpack on the chair and vented to me about Ben. So today I let him work with Drake. I figured he's so mad it's probably best to let him uh, work with a friend anyway. Social and emotional health is extremely neglected in many of the students here at Oak Hills. And unfortunately, there just aren't resources available to help students with the skills they need to cope. Many of the students who clearly have trauma and are hurting outside of the classroom are swept under the rugs and suspended or even expelled from the school instead of the school trying to address the issue. Adriana is one. Adriana is a member of my first bell class and overall is a good worker. She tries and comes in when she needs extra help. However, two weeks before spring break, she got into a bit of a spat with another group of girls and was suspended for a week. Not because she was fighting, but because after the fight, she mouthed off to a teacher. I know Adriana, and if the teacher had given her a minute to cool off and come down from whatever anger she had, this would have been a different story. Instead, the school pushed her aside, and unfortunately, she fell behind in her class. And instead of addressing the issue of her emotional needs at the time, she got suspended. This story is far too common. In the book Being Bad by C.T. Laura, the neglect of her brother's social and emotional needs at his school put him on a direct path to landing 15 years in prison. I pray this doesn't happen to any of my students, but the lack of support both emotionally and academically um, for my students is not helping the situation. In addition, Oak Hills holds its students to the expectation that school is the most important thing in their lives and that all students are able and willing to perform outside of the building. Every student has a Chromebook and many teachers this year only assign work online. But what happens if a student doesn't have Wi-Fi at home or the bill wasn't paid? What if a student does not feel safe at their home and can't focus on work? Or what if a student needs to work late to support their family? These are all issues that many students face. And while it is a small minority, it cannot be a silent one. Many teachers, including my host teachers, recognize this and work hard to push students during the little time we see them so they are required not to do work outside the building. However, for high-level classes like AP or Honors, the workload is just too big for students not to do work outside of the classroom. This results in AP classes being especially restricted to those who have the ability, locations, access, time, and energy to do homework outside of class each week. So what happens to the students who don't fit this mold of the perfect or near-perfect student? Well, for one, if they can't do work or won't do work outside of the school, they don't take AP classes and remain in general classes. But more often than not, they are brushed under the rug. I've had two students get expelled in my time at Oak Hills. 
both of my level 2 classes. While both did things that deserved expulsion, the school is no longer responsible for their education. So what happens now? I don't know. They are no longer the school's problem. And while they did make some bad choices, they're still kids with undeveloped brains and they need support. But for Oak Hills, the energy being put into supporting these kids reached its end. So now these two, quote, troublemakers with D's and F's are gone from the school and, as the principal stated, are, quote, out of our hair. So now the school is one step closer to being filled completely with schools with students who fit their ideals. One bad kid at a time. Don't get me wrong. Oak Hills is not an evil institution that is actively working against its students. But for many, the system is not working for them. And that is the issue. If a student doesn't have teachers or schools or peers that actively and daily show them that they are valued as a person and as a human being and are advocating for their success in every milestone that they make, that student cannot succeed to their full potential. It is my job as a teacher to support the whole being of a student. And that starts by putting myself in their shoes and seeing the school through their eyes and asking myself, would I want to be here if I was them? If the answer is no, something in the school needs to change. And it starts with me.